This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Our lessons from Tom Vanderbilt's book, You May Also Like, uh, it brought up an, an interesting, um, I think, problem a lot of us have when we are dealing with um, with likes or dislikes. One of my beliefs is just because you have a preference, right, doesn't mean that it, it has to be that way. And I learned this with my kids, um, that they can have a preference for what they want, but it doesn't mean we always choose that preference. Everyone can have likes or dislikes, and when it comes down to it, we, we need to figure out how to maybe try new things. Um, maybe that won't work for us today. My wife and I have learned a crazy little secret with our own kids that sometimes it's better to not tell them what we're doing. Because the minute we make an announcement about what we're doing, everyone's going to have an opinion. And with six kids and one of them married with a husband and a grandchild, we don't have time, I guess, to make it perfect for everyone. So we always try to just instill the idea that let's just try it, right? We can try it. If you don't like it, we don't have to like it. If you push too hard on people to try stuff, a lot of times you'll just create an immediate rebellion. If you if you don't push hard on people to try stuff, then they're never going to learn what else is out there in the world. So there's a fine balance, isn't there? And any parent knows there's a fine balance to getting their child to do something, to try something, but also do it in a way that we don't want to destroy the game. It's the balance of, uh, you know, the goose and the golden egg, Aesop's fable, that you want to keep getting results in life, but you've got to do it without destroying your ability to get results tomorrow. Any parent can get something to happen today. I can get my kids to eat their vegetables. But if I get it, get them to eat their vegetables in a way that uh, actually hinders my ability to do it next time, then I'm becoming less and less effective. Our goal is to be able to be effective long term to be able to get results today and be able to uh, get them again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And uh, Tom's work and uh, the example he was giving about, uh, you know, his getting his father to try a new drink or a new beer or a beverage, it's uh, it's probably very appropriate for all of us to learn. If we want to get people to try new things, then you probably need to model it that, hey, this this does this does well for for you they they can see that it it offers you an opportunity and maybe start where the people are it doesn't mean that they even want to change their beverage choice but you can at least offer it and if you're offering just a taste of something else you might want to take it folks um, i mean i know we all kind of fall in into our entrenched stubbornness at times but if somebody offers you a chance to try something different, try it and know that there's nothing lost here. Just try stuff. Try it. We don't need to revert back to the, you know, the five-year-old that's not going to open his mouth to try anything new. When you're, you know, when you're 45, you can just choose to 
try some new things. And amazingly, my trying and, and tasting of sushi 10 years ago changed my life. Thank you. Thank you. Changed my life, folks. But for 35 years, I had said, nah, I don't eat raw fish. That's just horrible. It's choice, folks. Don't force choice. Choice is inevitable. Just create a great space where it's worth trying. And it's easy to try. And it's easy to fail as well. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We just learned about our uh, physical health, right? You got you to gotta lose the soda. And I'm going to say, <laughs> just for my own sake... You got to lose the sugary soda. The 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 cancerous uh, acidic soda without sugar, totally fine. No, it's not. More water, folks. Now we tell our kids all of these things, and yet, uh, isn't it hard? Um, we we heard earlier in the show the story about the son who called the police because his dad ran a red light. Mm, thanks, Dad. There's certain things that they see out of you, right? Uh, They see how you handle stuff. They see what you're doing. Your kids are watching you, and they don't really have a shot at a healthy life if you don't provide it. And I'm not here to make you depressed because you're just such a horrible parent because you're not. But they're watching. They are watching. And if we want any hope of being able to lead our families, we we probably need to master ourselves and find one thing, just one thing. And maybe soda is the way to begin. If you know you're a big soda lover, soda drinker, deal with it. Find a way to break the habit. And I wouldn't personally just go diet. I've been diet and that doesn't help. I find that about three times a year, I quit soda for about a month And then I go out with a bunch of friends and I watch them drink soda and I'm like, oh, you guys are lucky. Can I just smell your drink? I feel like I'm an alcoholic and I never had alcohol. So how do we break a habit? How do we break it? And But also one of the things I'd think about is – Instead of building the story and the belief that habits are hard to break, let's find a better reason to have the habit. Why why would it be valuable for you to get rid of the soda? Well, my kids would be healthier. We would save money. Yeah, what else? We've got to figure out a way deep, deep down to drive this meaning much deeper than having it be about soda. And you don't even want, you got to be careful. You don't want your identity to be, well, I don't drink soda. I've never had sugar on my lips for the last six years. <laughs> I, it drives me crazy when we become so adamant about one thing and we've created our entire identity by not doing something. You also need to have your identity being something you do do, something that you are. Right? It's, I guess, easier to say what you're not, but sometimes we need to know what you are. So it's not just about a soda war. It's not just about, I'm a lazy bum and I can't get off of sugar. You, you also have to find what you are. And as soon as you can connect to that deeper meaning in your life and the deeper purpose of what you're about, you'll see that it's not about soda. I have a belief 
that if we could connect to our deepest, most spiritual self, we wouldn't drink soda, right? We also probably wouldn't make fun of people and we wouldn't yell and we wouldn't hold grudges because there's a deeper, better side of all of us. And uh, But our body is constantly battling that. So if we want to fix it, you don't necessarily have to just bare knuckle it and hunker down and get rid of everything in life that tastes good. You might also just want to figure out a deeper purpose for who you are. And again, you don't also have to go sit on a mountain like a monk and meditate. What it might simply mean is I got to just figure out why health is so important to me. And it might simply be because it gives me a body that works, and when my body works, it makes this life a little easier to live. It gives me a chance to live longer so I can learn more. If I can figure out why I'm even on this big ball of mud, this planet, then I want to be here to to learn. I think I'm here to learn. And if I'm slowly burning the candle at both ends of my life, then my learning is going to be shortchanged. And short change simply because I like sugar. I again, I don't think I don't think your God is up there sitting like I cannot believe he's drinking another super big gulp. But your conscience might be telling you something, and it might be telling you something because you know something about you. You know that you're not drinking enough, or you're not eating enough vegetables, or you're not being the person you need to be, and you can just, I guess, go medicate it by, you know, escaping and getting away from it. Or you could just dig a little deeper and find some other way to connect to a deeper reason why you want to do, why you want to get healthier. It's, if it's just about getting in the bathing suit, I promise it won't work. You might get in the bathing suit, but, you know, it might break or it might not last very long. There's always the deeper reason. And so get out of your body Get out of your mind that kind of justifies everything we do, and let's get down to our spirit, that uh, deeper inner connected being that you are, and see what it's telling you. It's, it's, it's still telling you no matter what, you're loved, you're a great person, you're wonderful, even if you're drinking, you know, cola. And it's also telling you, you can stop. You can moderate it. You could get in charge of it and lead it a little bit more. Everyone's going to have a trial. Everyone's going to have a challenge. Everyone. If your challenge are sugary drinks, okay. But no, that's not the real challenge. The real challenge is becoming the best you you can become. And you're not bad because you do it. You just you need to figure it out. No matter what the addiction or no matter what the, uh, the craving is, right? Interesting stuff, folks. That's the Coach's Corner. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we've all seen a story in the news somewhere where a seemingly stable, rational person commits an uncharacteristic act of violence. These episodes of rage often end tragically with a little explanation as to what caused the outburst. 
Our next guest uh, is Douglas, Dr. Douglas Fields. He is a neurobiologist whose recent book uh, is titled Why We Snap, Understand the Rage Circuit in Your Brain, and it explains the cause of these sudden outbursts of rage. Of rage. According to Dr. Fields, the violent behavior is the result of the clash between our evolutionary hard- hardwiring and the triggers from our contemporary world. Joining us from Bethesda, Maryland, Dr. Uh, Douglas Fields. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, Dr. Fields. Hi, Matt. Great to be on your show. Great to be on your. Great to have you. I'm so excited. We had to postpone you the other day uh, from being on the show, but I had to have you on as soon as I could because this topic I see a lot. I mean, I guess there's different types of snapping, right? But I, I see clients that fight with their partner and react and get very and have very quick triggers. What is what is going on? First of all, explain what snapping is. And and uh, and why did you choose to study this of all things? Right. Well, for much the same reason uh, that you just mentioned, it's very intriguing, particularly uh, from a neuroscience perspective, because snapping is this sudden, impulsive, aggressive, or violent uh, reaction to something in the environment. But we don't call it snapping unless it's inappropriate to the mm. situation. If it's appropriate, we call it uh, quick thinking or yeah. heroism. You know. Right. But if you look in the brain, it's the same circuit, and the thing that intrigued me about snapping is that it's not deliberate, it's not conscious, um, and that's what leaves us feeling bewildered uh, after, you know, you wrap a golf club around a tree or smash <laughs> a dish and immediately regret it. And Why did I do that? So that's what I under- wanted to understand. And those are two clues. The fact that it's very rapid and that it's not conscious are two clues to how it, this circuit works in the brain. And inappropriate. And inappropriate. Yes. Right? I mean, isn't that – it's interesting because, like, you'll hear stories of heroism where someone will stop a mugger and they really were snapping, except we praise that. And then, right, like you said, somebody, you know, wraps a golf club or throws a club into the lake and we look at them like, man, Larry's out of control. Is, right. it, well, is it controllable? Well, it is controllable. Um, but in the, the first part to controlling it is to understand the circuitry. We don't have this circuit. We have this circuitry because we need it. It's life-saving, and we need it for the reasons that you alluded to. It really is part of the brain's threat detection mechanism. Um, but uh, it, it does get misfired, particularly in the modern world, because we have the same brain we had 100,000 years ago, right. but the world's entirely different. So that leads to misfiring. Um, but the important thing to understand is that we're all wired for violence. Hmm. Um, when I read the papers every day, it's these you know domestic disputes, barroom brawls, uh, workplace shootings, people who are not mentally ill, and we just say they snapped. So that's what I'm what I'm interested in. We all have the capacity for violence. It's in a part of the brain that's not conscious. It's in what's called the hypothalamus, and this is deep in the brain, same part of the brain that controls sexual behavior hmm. and, and feeding and thirst. So it's and, very yeah it's it's a very be, it's it's a base oh yeah drive it's not verbal and it if or conscious and if you stimulate neurons in this region with an electrode the animal will instantly attack and kill another animal in the cage this is called the hypothalamic attack area of the brain so we all have this because we need it we need violence to protect ourselves to protect our offspring um, we're carnivores as a species. Uh, and we don't need to be taught this behavior. But then the question becomes, what trips this circuit? And that's what's uh, very interesting, and that's the new, the new uh, research. Because if you think about it, 
no animal is going to engage in violence or a human being uh, uh, lightly. Uh, engaging in violence is very risky. Mm-hmm. And although, as you said, it seems like almost anything can set somebody off you know, to snapping, that's not true. There are only very specific triggers. And in the book, Why We Snap, I identify nine of them that will cause this response. Um, and these are independent circuits in the brain. That's the new neuroscience. Wow. So, yeah, so that, that, that's the key, the key finding. If you can understand what these circuits are that will stimulate the attack area, and I described the new science that's traced these out, um, and you can identify, if you have a sudden rise in anger, whether one of these circuits is the reason for your anger, then you can diffuse it. Well, and this is what's so strange because uh, apparently some of these triggers, I mean, it makes sense to attack if you're being attacked or if you're, so, if you're cornered, if you're threatened, if your child's being attacked or hurt. But to, we, I am assuming we could also snap just because um, our wife is questioning our loyalty. Um, you're right, but it's because of uh, a one trigger. Of these, one of these triggers that makes sense biologically. So yeah. You're too close to this as human beings. You have to step back and look at the brain the way I do. Yeah. Neuroscientists look at the circuits, and I'm, you know I, I see the same circuits in animals that are in human brains, and there are only nine triggers. Um, but but the trick is that you know trying to identify them sometimes in the modern world is a little bit tricky. Uh, for example, on road rage. But uh, if you can do that. Two things will happen. You're driving down the road. Suddenly you feel this, uh, this overwhelming anger. If you can instantly say, is it one of these triggers? And I've given them a num- mnemonic, life morts, mm-hmm. which I can explain to okay. help people quickly identify it. If you identify that your anger is being provoked by one of these nine triggers, you'll know two things. You'll know that you're pressing on neural circuitry designed by evolution to release violence, potentially deadly violence. And that's why we see deadly violence erupt on the road. Um, and secondly, if you can, in that same instant, realize that this is being provoked inappropriately, it's a, really a misfire, then the anger will go away. Hmm. Because the anger, emotion of anger is the result of your threat detection mechanism in your brain preparing you to fight. Now you're, but you're kind of cognitively, I guess, overriding the hypothalamus by, by just by recognizing it, aren't you? Yes, well, exactly. We, th- this circuitry is under control. Of the, of the prefrontal cortex. Um, mm. And so it can be controlled. And in Why We Snap, I interview a lot of people who have developed, uh, who work in threatening situations, race car drivers, SEAL Team 6, Secret Service agents, fascinating people, but also nonviolent people like the religious group Jains and Quakers. Um, and they optimize and control this uh, threat detection circuitry in the brain. I'll give you an example. So if, you, if somebody bumps into you, you will instantly uh, respond aggressively, defensively. That's one of the triggers. You know, we call that self-defense trigger. In the, in the mnemonic, that's life or limb. You, will, you or any animal will engage in violence if you are uh, threatened, you know, attacked. But if that person bumps into you and immediately says, oh, excuse me, what happens? Yeah, diffuse. goes away. So you can do that same thing to yourself. Um, in the same situations, if you can identify these triggers, and you know the anger management approach is, is helpful, I, you know, especially with chronic stress and whatnot. But often, when somebody's angry, <laughs> telling them to calm down doesn't help. It just right. makes it worse. And even telling yourself to calm down doesn't work. Much better to ask, "Why am I angry?" Interesting. Like, yeah, ask a question to. I, I guess that drives you to the prefrontal cortex. Yep. 
Yeah, because um, is it? I noticed just driving with my wife, she'll startle, like thinking a car's about to crush on top of us in a horrible accident, and um, and the minute she startles, it her startle startles me, and it I can just feel I'm immediately amped up, like wanting to attack. Right. Well. Again, this is the threat detection mechanism of the brain, and it's an amazing mechanism. So um, it's unconscious for the two reasons. Um, it has to happen fast. If it went to the conscious part of the brain, the cortex, that's too slow. Right. And also, you're taking in too much information as your wife is driving. Think about all the internal and external uh situational information that her body is taking in through all her senses. All of that sensory information goes to this part of the brain, the, the amygdala, before it goes to your conscious mind. Mm-hmm. So our brain is always on the lookout for threats. Now, what you described is a situation where you start to feel under stress. Yeah. What that is, is your brain's threat detection mechanism taking in all this information that would overwhelm your conscious mind, concluding you're in danger. And the only way it can communicate that to your cerebral cortex, to your consciousness, is through this nonverbal emotion, which we call chronic stress. Mm. But we have all kinds of emotions that are the result of our threat detection mechanism trying to communicate, and it's the way it communicates to the conscious brain. You know, fear means you're in immediate danger. Yeah. Um, you know, jealousy, uh, anger, these are all different emotions um, that your threat detection mechanism of your brain is using to convey the threat to your conscious brain. But the final point I didn't get to is that when you're in a threatening situation, you put all of these triggers on high alert. And so they're more likely to misfire. And that's what happens on the freeway or in any kind of stressful, chronic stressful situation. That makes sense. If you're in a threatening environment, you want to have your threat detection mechanism on high alert. Yeah. So, but it really, then you're, then you are amped and more likely to, to make a a triggering mistake. Exactly. We we don't want to we don't want to inhibit the the good snapping. We want to inhibit the misfiring. But you know, if it's on a hair trigger, like any burglar alarm or any you know even you know firearm that's <laughs> with the safety off, it's more likely to misfire. Mm. So so you know a lot of chronic stress. We know we're on chronic stress. You and I both know what that feels yeah. like. Um, and you may not be able to control it. There may be life events, you know, death in the family or financial situations, um, and you can't really control it. But if you can be aware that, listen to your, your, your uh, threat detection mechanism, you're under chronic stress, you need to be very careful uh, and that you're going to trip one of these triggers uh, inappropriately. Mm. No, and it totally makes sense. I mean, if you're underslept, if you're if you're working crazy hours trying to make something happen, the the odds go up, you know, incredibly higher to that you're going to have a, a misfire. Uh, let's take a break. We're speaking with Doctor Douglas Fields, who is the author of Why We Snap: Understand the Rage Circuit in Your Brain. Excellent insight, isn't it, into what um, what really is going on in your mind, your brain? I mean, you can rationalize it all you want, uh, but there are ways to kind of take this on. It sounds like there's nine triggers. We'll come back and talk about some of the triggers. Also want to find out if uh, if there's any direction based on, you know, uh, based on gender. Men more likely to snap than women and why. We'll get into that as well. Plus, uh, I want to hear the story behind the story. Dr. Douglas Fields has an interesting reason for why he even, why where he has experienced this snap. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever just snapped? Every day. Ben is like taking copious notes on today's guest. Uh, Ben also just reminded me his favorite uh, member of the Rice Krispie Trio Snap, Crackle, and Pop. Snap. I relate to him the most. (laughs) He's got that quick trigger. Joining us is Dr. Douglas Fields. He is the author of the book, Why We Snap, Understand the Rage Circuit in Your Brain. He's a neuroscientist uh, and a respected one and a senior investigator at the National Institutes of Health. He's not just talking about, you know, when somebody has a mental health breakdown, like we hear in the news so many times, and then they go on some shooting spree. He's talking about when your brain goes off and has an immediate kind of reactive response to an event, and um, especially an inappropriate response. If it were appropriate, we'd call it heroism. We'd call it, what a stud. But when, you know, when it turns kind of ugly, it's, it's, a, it's snap. It's a, it's a moment when we, I guess we're hijacked is what I call it by our brain. Dr. Douglas Fields, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I love, I mean, I do with my clients, I call it being hijacked. And um, but it, it, this is more than just, this is a chemical reaction is really what you're having, right? Well, it's neurocircuitry, and, yeah. and, and, and I understand what you mean by hijack, but this is going on constantly. This is the circuit that protects you. You know, if a, if a basketball comes flying at your face and you dodge, uh, take aggressive action before ever, um, you know, even consciously uh, knowing that, that you're in danger, yeah. this is the same circuitry. So I understand what you mean by hijack, but, but, but it's, it's every it, day. It's every day, but it does misfire, and particularly so in the modern world. And the misfiring, I mean, I guess part of it is there's just too many, there's too many things operating on us today than 100,000 years ago. I mean, 100,000 years ago, this was used to make sure that the tiger or whatever didn't eat us, the saber-toothed, whatever, tiger didn't eat us. But now it's it's not about the tiger. It's about the car that almost hit me. It's about another red light. Are you kidding me? Right. It's about all of these things. Right. So wow. that, that gets into the, to the nine triggers that yeah. we have wired into our brain. Let's go into some of those. All right. So um, that, there won't be time to do it in detail, but to give your listeners the, the idea, for example, we all know the mama bear response yeah. between a mother and her, her uh, child, threaten the child. There's no conscious thought involved. It's all out aggression to protect her child. That's hardwired in the brain, in this uh, same region of the brain. It's a parent. It doesn't have to be a, a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, in animals, we can see that circuit activated. Put a, uh, uh, when a mother's a rat's pup is being uh, threatened, we, can then, we know exactly which circuit it is. We can then knock that circuit out. And the mother will no longer protect her pups, but she still will have these rapid defensive aggressive responses to other triggers. For mm. example, the self-defense one I mentioned. So in order to uh, recognize these circuits, I don't use the scientific jargon. I've given this mnemonic so that, to help you remember them. Yeah. Life, life mort. So L is life or limb. That's if you're attacked, you will fight. I is insult. I'll go quickly through and then yeah. we'll come back. F is family. That's the mother uh, bear response. E is environment. Um, basically, territorial animals will re- resort to violence to protect their territory. Humans are fiercely territorial. 
you know, uh, trespassers will be shot. Somebody coming yeah. home, you know, you, you, if you have to, you'll physically get rid of them. That's the E, environment trigger. M is mate. Um, aggression is used in acquiring and uh, maintaining mates in mammals and primates. Uh, o is order in society. Um, it's, and it's remarkable. All these triggers are double-edged sword because you just mentioned one. Say somebody runs uh, a stop sign. We're angry. Yeah. And it's because this person has violated the order, uh, the rules of society. So we're social animals. If you, your success, your survival depends on being part of the society. Right. And all social animals use violence to maintain the structure of society. And so do we. We use police now to meet out that violence. But it's so remarkable that you will get angry when somebody uh, doesn't follow the orders, uh, the, the rules. And that's what happened to Bernie, right? Right. It, uh, when... When uh, in the debate, Hillary starts speaking out of turn. So mm. that, th- oh, that's that interesting. Yeah, because he went off. Yeah. But, I mean, he didn't, like, go crazy, but there was no. this moment that almost seemed inappropriate. No, but he was angry. For Bernie, and, and right. Anger is to prepare you to fight, so you have to look back and then, why are you angry? The same reason in road rage, when somebody starts to cut into the lane when you're merging. Why mm-hmm. do you get angry? You get angry because the person is violating the rules, and at one time you would have to deal with that physically yourself. R is resources. We'll engage in uh, aggression, you know, to protect our resources, just like a family pet will if you get near his food dish. Mm-hmm. T is tribe. Um, we are uh, we are tribal animals. We, uh, you know, when we evolved in the plains of Africa, when we encountered another group, that was a dangerous threat to our resources and survival. This is, of course, the basis for, uh, you know, gangs and, and wars and um, but it's also what allows us to work together cohesively as a mm. society, and, and, and it's remarkable that well, we can go, you know, shirts and skins, yeah. and, and just in the most elite and high-rapid <laughs> endeavor, operate as teams. And well, and sports one, rivalries, right? I mean, yeah. all of a sudden we're mad because so-and-so won the game. Yeah. So again, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, you, you can't have one without the other. The last one is S for stopped. Um, any animal that's restrained will uh, respond aggressively, you know, chew his paw off to get out of a trap. I mean, Aaron Ralston, the backpacker, did that, you know, and it was life-saving, cut off his own arm. Mm-hmm. So that explains in traffic why, you know, you're suddenly um, everything stops, as you said. Well, why are you angry? I know humans have a range of emotions. Wow. Why, why aren't you sleepy or bored? Yeah. Why, are you, why are you ready to go track down and kill, you know, kill yeah. and fight? Some people do. Isn't that interesting? Because every it's one of those makes trigger. sense. I mean, that list of these are all just triggers, right? So They're all triggers. They're, but they, they're not from a point, perspective of behavior. They're from a perspective of brain circuitry. Mm. And that's the example. If you can see that, okay, I understand I'm angry because traffic stopped and you know, this S trigger in my brain knows about being grabbed by the ankles, but, you know, uh, driving a car is 100,000 years ahead of this circuitry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a misfire, and you go, well, of course, you know, getting in a fight's actually not going to do anything or actually make it worse. The anger goes away. And um, so th- this is really interesting because as a behaviorist almost, that this is how I, I would look at this all behaviorally. And you're, but you're saying this, our brain's have circuitry wired to protect us with these nine types of triggers that would create more of an automatic response. Right. This is a different perspective. Yeah. It's no, a, brilliant. The psychology is great, but there's a rich literature as totally. you know, on that. This is a totally different perspective from new methods to trace out these circuits in the brain and see that, you know, that we have them, and most of the time they work great, but sometimes they misfire. Well, and again, I guess this is, this is, this is, it would be the evolution, right? So we've evolved 
this kind of security net to protect us, how on earth do I use other parts of my evolution, like the prefrontal cortex, uh, to to kind of circumvent the trigger? Well, uh, I talk about that in the book. It is part of the mechanism. You can inhibit this response, and of course, drugs and alcohol interfere with this. Teenagers don't have the prefrontal cortex developed, so that's why uh, it's, it's very uh, difficult for them to control this, and I think more helpful for them to understand why they're angry in the situation. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I interview uh, SEAL Team 6 members. They talk about how they developed this and also the genes, the, the ability to control this. And it works both ways. You can have unconscious, you can have this, you know, top-down and bottom-up control of this threat detection circuitry, uh, which I explain. Man, is it um, is it something that do men have this? Like, are they wired differently? Are they wired with just a stronger response, kind of a more a stronger fight or flight, or is it what is it that would make more men be in prison than women? Yeah, Yeah, great question. Great, Um, you know, the most important factor in aggression, human aggression, uh, mammalian aggression, is sex. Um, Ninety percent of all the prisoners uh, in prison for violent crimes are men. Hmm. Um, or, and, but at the same time, 90% of all the awards for heroism given by the Carnegie Foundation are given to men. Uh, and a quarter of those were given to men who sacrificed their life in an instant uh, yeah. for a stranger. And they always say, you know, the ones who survive afterwards say, I don't know, I didn't think, I just reacted. One of these triggers was tripped. Um, and they so men, men men do respond differently. There are a lot of fascinating differences uh, between aggression between men and women, and between the brain circuits that are different in men and women. And it again goes down to evolution. It makes no sense for for uh, a woman to get in a physical fight with a with a, a guy who weighs 100 pounds more than she right. does. So women don't do that. They engage in indirect aggression, gossip, ganging up, uh, sabotage, poisoning, this kind of things. Um, mm-hmm. But also, the sad fact is, you and I wandering around the streets at night don't worry about being sexually assaulted. And, you know, the horribly sad fact is no woman can ever not have that in the back of her mind. Right. Um, and so this kind of different threat that affects women has changed their threat detection mechanisms and make, makes uh, women's threat detection mechanisms different in some respects from men. So research shows brainwave recording and functional brain imaging shows that women are much better, much faster at divining intentions and threats from facial expressions. Mm. Um, And uh, another example is that in times of uh, stress, women use the left hemisphere and men use the right hemisphere. Now, uh, in normal situations, we're switching back and forth between the left and the right because the right hemisphere is building up this big picture, synthesis, the left is breaking it down and looking at all the details. Um, but in times of stress, the sexes cleave so that the females look at all the details and the males look at the grand picture. And I saw this in my own, in my own case uh, when, when I was uh, robbed in Barcelona with my daughter. And uh, we were being pursued by this gang. And it was just so obvious that, that Kelly uh, could spot these uh, gang members quickly, much before I could. And mm. I'm thinking about big strategies. What am I going to do when I encounter them? You know? And she's, she's down there in, uh, in the weeds picking these guys out before they're on us. Wow. Yeah. 
Isn't that amazing? I, I see it when we get into relationships. Uh, the research shows that about 70 percent of the time women are more inclined to pursue the conversation and men tend to withdraw from the conversation. And I wonder – 70 percent of the time. And I wonder if it's not because um, of these triggers. Well, yeah. Like they know. want to avoid the trigger. They know a trigger is going to get fired. Well, again, you know, our brain is a product of the course of um, survival of the fittest over the last 100,000 years, and the traditional roles of men and women are quite different over that period and have given very different sorts of threats. Of course, today we live in a very different world, but nonetheless, uh, we have this same circuitry. So, yes, men uh, and women are very different. This 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 idea of uh, the, the explanation for women looking at details in a threatening situation is not really understood but one thought is that in general, in, in uh, mating, uh, males audition and females make the decisions. So you mm. think of you know birds with uh, wild plumages and and dances. The females are making critical mate selection decisions based on real subtle differences in plumage and that kind of thing. And so you know, uh, same thing probably goes on today. You know, but before. Before she gives you your phone number, she's already wondering, you know, are you going to take out the garbage? Or am I going to be picking up on this guy? Yeah. <laughs> Is know? he going to talk to me? Yeah. No, it's yeah. true, huh? And the guy's thinking big picture things. Right. Interesting. Well, we appreciate it. This is such great insight. Um, Again, the book is called uh, Why We Snap, Understand the Rage Circuit in Your Brain. And uh, Dr. Douglas Fields, thank you so much for being with us and teaching us all of these these incredible new, new tools for us. Thanks, Matt. I have to add a dis- disclaimer because yeah, you mentioned that I work at the NIH and I do run a lab here. But, of course, this book is not no, uh, not, not connected to the government. NIH. Yeah. Many would say, thank heavens, Doug. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> I have, that. I have no comment. I know. I know. Good stuff. Uh, he, he does run a lab there, folks. And really a, a renowned uh, uh, neurobiologist. So honored to have him on the show. Again, go check out the book, Why We Snap. Man, interesting, isn't it? What we are learning about ourselves and our own, um, our own, you know, hidden strengths, hidden, I guess, triggers. We'll take a break, folks. We'll come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, isn't that interesting? How many times have you just lost it? And it doesn't matter. It could be, you know, mom's making cookies with the kids. And one kid throws flour everywhere. The alarms go off in her head. And it it creates that trigger. That simple trigger of, you know, that's not the way we do it. Order in society. Sorry, hon, we don't do it that way. So you're going to need to go to timeout. We might need to take this into account with our tasing company. I know. We might need to, like, do background checks before we sit. Well, no, because... Mm-hmm. I'm worried that the tase, this might totally throw our tasing company out of the... Because you don't want people triggered and then tasing people. Or do you? Might be fun. Let's make yeah. it into a game. Let's see if we can hit one of your triggers. Yeah, we could make like a reality show. 
That's horrible. Horrible. Uh, anyway, folks, this is your body, right? This is your brain. 100,000 years, you're not going to change kind of the evolutionary side unless you engage the prefrontal cortex by asking questions. So make sure you take some time. If you lost it, if you lost your cool, I mean, it would be great to catch it in the midst of the, you know, in the snap. But if you didn't, at least go back and look at some of the times that you've blown up and ask yourself, why, why did I go off? What was my trigger? And actually try to figure out why it happened, how it happened. Think it through. With my clients, we then create a protocol, like a, just some rules for what I will do next time I start to feel that trigger go off. If you could just get good at recognizing what your triggers tend to be in certain situations and what they feel like, then all of a sudden you might be starting to control this to the degree that you can control it. Again, if a Navy SEAL can control their reactions in the field, then then we can work on it in our relationships, in our life, with our family, to have healthier, happier lives. Remember, that's the goal of the show, to help you live longer, love stronger. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Whole new hour next hour, folks. Stick with us. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Our lessons from Tom Vanderbilt's book, You May Also Like, uh, it brought up an, an interesting, um, I think, problem a lot of us have when we are dealing with... Um, with likes or dislikes, one of my beliefs is just because you have a preference, right, doesn't mean that it it has to be that way. And I learned this with my kids, um, that they can have a preference for what they want, but it doesn't mean we always choose that preference. Everyone can have likes or dislikes, and when it comes down to it, we, we need to figure out how to maybe try new things. Um, maybe that won't work for us today. My wife and I have learned a crazy little secret with our own kids that sometimes it's better to not tell them what we're doing. Because the minute we make an announcement about what we're doing, everyone's going to have an opinion. And with six kids and one of them married with a husband and a grandchild, we don't have time, I guess, to make it perfect for everyone. So we always try to just instill the idea that let's just try it, right? We can try it. If you don't like it, we don't have to like it. If you push too hard on people to try stuff, a lot of times you'll just create an immediate rebellion. If you if you don't push hard on people to try stuff, then they're never going to learn what else is out there in the world. So there's a fine balance, isn't there? And any parent knows there's a fine balance to getting their child to do something, to try something but also do it in a way that we don't want to destroy the game. It's the balance of, uh, you know, the goose and the golden egg, Aesop's fable, that you want to keep getting results in life, but you've got to do it without destroying your ability to get results tomorrow. Any parent can get something to happen today. I can get my kids to eat their vegetables. But if I get get them to eat their vegetables in a way that uh, actually hinders my ability to do it next time, then I'm becoming less and less effective. Our goal is to be able to be effective long-term. 
to be able to get results today and be able to uh, get them again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And uh, Tom's work uh, in the example he was giving about, uh, you know, his getting his father to try a new drink or a new beer or a beverage, it's uh, it's probably very appropriate for all of us to learn if we want to get people to try new things, then you probably need to model it that, hey, this this does this does well for for you. They they can see that it, it offers you an opportunity and maybe start where the people are. It doesn't mean that they even want to change their beverage choice, but you can at least offer it. And if you're offering just a taste of something else, you might want to take it, folks. I mean, I know we all kind of fall in, into our entrenched stubbornness at times, but if somebody offers you a chance to try something different, try it. And know that there's nothing lost here. Just try stuff. Try it. We don't need to revert back to the, you know, the five-year-old that's not going to open his mouth to try anything new. When you're, you know, when you're 45, you can just choose to try some new things. And amazingly, my trying and, and tasting of sushi 10 years ago changed my life. Thank you. Thank you. Changed my life, folks. But for 35 years, I had said, nah, I don't eat raw fish. That's just horrible. It's choice, folks. Don't force choice. Choice is inevitable. Just create a great space where it's worth trying. And it's easy to try. And it's easy to fail as well. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Doing a little coach's corner for you here. Now, the breakup between Great Britain and the EU, it's it's like a it's like a it's a bunch of friends that you lined up years ago. And now they just don't get along. They just don't get along. So what are you supposed to do? And who do you go with, right? Do I go with my best friend, Great Britain? But I, I've really come to love and appreciate the other partners. Mm, I don't know. I don't know what you do. Well, the EU gives you financial benefits. So is your friend more important than financial benefits? No, because I feel like I can use both of them equally. How many times on the show have we talked about collaboration and the need to work together, the need to – I mean, we live in a global economy. We live in a global marketplace, and now Great Britain's going to kind of go it alone. But they still need markets, right? They still need places to put their their goods. They still need trade. And I guess they're assuming or believing that they'll just be able to pick that up. So it, it may not be an all or nothing kind of mentality. It, it's this is a it's an interesting concern about isolationism. In fact, it reminds me of um, this story that I read. Oh, listen to this poor guy: a Colombian sailor found alive after two months adrift in the Pacific. A sailor has been rescued after spending two harrowing months lost at sea, witnessing the deaths of his three shipmates and forced to eat seagulls for survival. 29-year-old Colombian sailor was picked up some 3,500 miles from home, far out in a desolate stretch of the Pacific Ocean. According to the U.S. Coast Guard, he arrived on dry land in Honolulu on Wednesday. Can you imagine finally seeing ground? 
landed on in Honolulu, saying the sailor was in good condition and happy to have survived. The sailor told officials his group of four set off from Columbia more than two months ago. When the engine of their 23-foot skiff failed, they found themselves adrift, and they were forced to eat fish and seagulls to stay alive. He told the Coast Guard the bodies of his compatriots were not on board anymore, the tiny vessel, when it was found, but the sole survivor was able to produce their passports. So they had to be let go, probably. He was also found with a soccer ball, wasn't he? No, that's 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 another show. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. this isn't. This is a different. This is a real life story. This is not. Isn't that other one a real life story too? No, really. No, that's a movie. That's a movie. I thought it was a documentary. No, Castaway. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a movie. It it was it didn't happen. But this yeah. is the music. I appreciate how you played that music behind this, but. This this uh, was a real story of a guy that had to, I mean, I guess eventually these guys died and then you just throw them into the ocean. That's what you got to do. You can't have, them, can't have them just dead there next to you. Can you imagine? Sometimes that's how I feel. Alone on an island or just alone in a skiff. With a dead body next to you. With a dead body named Ben sleeping on the board. That's what I'm afraid of for the UK. Be careful. Be careful going off on your own. Sometimes you might just be adrift for two months and have to eat seagulls. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you see the good in the world. The guy survived. That's the good. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We just learned about our uh, physical health, right? You gotta, You got to lose the soda. And I'm going to say... <laughs> Just for my own sake, you got to lose the sugary soda, the 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 cancerous uh, acidic soda without sugar. Totally fine. No, it's not. More water, folks. Now we tell our kids all of these things, and yet, uh, isn't it hard? Um, we we heard earlier in the show the story about the son who called the police because his dad ran a red light. Mmm. Thanks, Dad. There's certain things that they see out of you, right? Uh, they see how you handle stuff. They see what you're doing. Your kids are watching you, and they don't really have a shot at a healthy life if you don't provide it. And I'm not here to make you depressed because you're just such a horrible parent because you're not. But they're watching. They are watching. And if we want any hope of being able to lead our families, we we probably need to master ourselves and find one thing, just one thing. And maybe soda is the way to begin. If you know you're a big soda lover, soda drinker, deal with it. Find a way to break the habit. And I wouldn't personally just go diet. I've been diet and that doesn't help. I find that about three times a year, I quit soda for about a month and then I go out with a bunch of friends and I watch them drink soda and I'm like, oh, you guys are lucky. Can I just smell your drink? It's, I feel like I'm an alcoholic and I never had alcohol. So how do we break a habit? How do we break it? And But also one of the things I think about is 
instead of building the story and the belief that habits are hard to break, let's find a better reason to have the habit. Why why would it be valuable for you to get rid of the soda? Well, my kids would be healthier. We would save money. Yeah, what else? We've got to figure out a way deep, deep down to drive this meaning much deeper than having it be about soda. And you don't even want, you got to be careful. You don't want your identity to be, well, I don't drink soda. I've never had sugar on my lips for the last six years. <laughs> it drives me crazy when we become so adamant about one thing and we've created our entire identity by not doing something. You also need to have your identity being something you do do, something that you are, right? It's, I guess, easier to say what you're not, but sometimes we need to know what you are. So it's not just about a soda war. It's not just about, I'm a lazy bum and I can't get off of sugar. You, you also have to find what you are. And as soon as you can connect to that deeper meaning in your life and the deeper purpose of what you're about, you'll see that it's not about soda. I have a belief that if we could connect to our deepest, most spiritual self, we wouldn't drink soda, right? We also probably wouldn't make fun of people and we wouldn't yell and we wouldn't hold grudges because there's a deeper, better side of all of us. And, uh, but our body is constantly battling that. So if we want to fix it, you don't necessarily have to just bare knuckle it and hunker down and get rid of everything in life that tastes good. You might also just want to figure out a deeper purpose for who you are. And again, you don't also have to go sit on a mountain like a monk and meditate. What it might simply mean is I got to just figure out why health is so important to me. And it might simply be because it gives me a body that works, and when my body works, it makes this life a little easier to live. It gives me a chance to live longer so I can learn more. If I can figure out why I'm even on this big ball of mud, this planet, then I want to be here to to learn. I think I'm here to learn. And if I'm slowly burning the candle at both ends of my life, then my learning is going to be shortchanged. And short change simply because I like sugar. I again, I don't think I don't think your God is up there sitting like I cannot believe he's drinking another super big gulp. But your conscience might be telling you something, and it might be telling you something because you know something about you. You know that you're not drinking enough, or you're not eating enough vegetables, or you're not being the person you need to be, and you can just, I guess, go medicate it by, you know, escaping and getting away from it. Or you could just dig a little deeper and find some other way to connect to a deeper reason why you want to do, why you want to get healthier. If it's just about getting in the bathing suit, I promise it won't work. You might get in the bathing suit, but, you know, it might break or it might not last very long. There's always the deeper reason. And so get out of your body Get out of your mind that kind of justifies everything we do. And let's get down to our spirit, that uh, deeper inner connected being that you are, and see what it's telling you. It's, it's, it's still telling you no matter what, you're loved, you're a great person, you're wonderful, even if you're drinking, you know, cola. 
And it's also telling you, you can stop. You can moderate it. You could get in charge of it and lead it a little bit more. Everyone's going to have a trial. Everyone's going to have a challenge. Everyone. If your challenge are sugary drinks, okay. But no, that's not the real challenge. The real challenge is becoming the best you you can become. And you're not bad because you do it. You just, you need to figure it out. No matter what the addiction or no matter what the uh, the craving is, right? Interesting stuff, folks. That's the Coach's Corner. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. You know, what if you could strike a pose and feel more powerful or confident? What does your smile say about you? And uh, what if you could, you know, in a job interview, just simply produce or position yourself in a better way so you felt more confident going in and not even just more confident going in, but that you you gave off a better impression of confidence, feeling better, having others sense that you're more confident. That is the power of some of this uh, nonverbal and body language tools that our next guest has been researching extensively. Her name is Dr. Amy Cuddy. She's an associate professor at Harvard Business School, and her popular TED Talk, Your Body Language Shapes Who You Are, has over 30 million views. It's one of the top viewed TED Talks, and we're honored to have her on the phone. She joins us now live from Boston. Dr. Cuddy, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much for having me. Great having you. I loved your TED Talk, and I love this topic. We've had people come on the show before and talk about like power poses, which is a big part of, I know, that TED Talk you did. But your research is 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 a lot deeper than just a pose, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I, that's, you know, what I what I talk about in my, my new book, Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. So that's really the the work that I've been that I've been thinking so much about lately, uh, and certainly you know, holding a certain pose for a couple of minutes can make you feel better. But I think that understanding the deeper principles of the self and uh, how we behave in situations that seem threatening versus uh, situations that seem safe is really useful to understanding how to bring our best self to those stressful situations. Talk to so us that's about really what this book is about. Well, and talk about it. How, how did how did you get into it, Dr. Cuddy? Because it's I mean, you're at Harvard Business School and but this is about influence, really, right? This is about your confidence and your ability to influence and get results. Um, it's funny. I wouldn't actually say that even though I I, I think I started uh, from from that point, um, what I learned through kind of the process of writing the book and, and looking at this huge range of, of research is that what really it's about is leaving these stressful situations feeling that you've been seen, hmm. feeling that you showed people your true best self. So your, you know, your, your sort of kindest self and your strongest self. And if you leave these situations like job interviews feeling that way, you can live with whatever the outcome is. Now, the funny thing is that the outcome is actually likely to be better. If you leave feeling that way, you probably also performed better. So they're not unrelated. But to me, the focus is much more 
on a quality of life dimension that's not just about winning. Yeah, that's right. About knowing that you've represented yourself. Because how many times, yeah, does that happen where we feel like, uh, I was so off. Oh, I just exactly. wasn't myself. And this is so you're yeah, saying well, I it's have more. Said this two minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and just knowing you you left it all there and it, and you did all you could. That's right. I mean, that's that's really what people want to. That's that's what gives people a sense of peace and satisfaction when it comes to these big challenges. You know, they just yeah they even and it could be something like. Um, conflict with a family member, people, which, you know, really isn't about winning. People just want to feel that they, they, uh, that they were seen and that they saw the other person accurately and that the, there's a sense of peace and understanding when they leave that situation, hmm. right? So there are just so many situations that aren't about a concrete outcome uh, of winning and losing. And, uh, and even ones that are ultimately are really more about knowing that you did your best. Well, and it seems like to me, if inside of my head, I'm going to use these, uh, you know, kind of these skills to to manipulate. Not that's a bad word, but to to close the deal or to get my win, it probably will influence how you see me. Yeah, in fact, I mean, the, the, you know, one of the things I say is that people spend so much time thinking about the impression that they're making on others. And they don't manage the impression that they're making on themselves. And by focusing on impression management as, you know, if I act this way, they'll think this of me. It just, first of all, you know, it's a little bit inauthentic, well, it's definitely inauthentic and dishonest. Yeah. But that's not even my biggest problem with it. My biggest problem with it is that it's just ineffective because people cannot manage all of the, first of all, you don't know what they think of you. You know, and you, you should not ever try to adapt who you are to what you think someone else wants. You know, you should you, you need to be true to your core values. And, and when you feel confident and powerful enough to do that, you are able to reveal that true self. So by managing, worrying, not, not even worrying, but by focusing more on how we see ourselves, knowing who we are, knowing our story, believing our story, we're much more compelling to other people because they then know that they're seeing something real. Mm. When people know that they're seeing something that's forced or faked or choreographed, you know, they don't like it as much. They don't find it convincing. There's some visceral reaction that tells them, I don't totally trust this person. And if you've lost them at trust, there's no way you're going to influence them. That's huge. And that's a big part of, I know what you teach, that trust is like, I don't know, I can't remember what you call it. It's like the currency. It's the... Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's the conduit of influence. That's it's a like, conduit. Like the medium through which ideas travel. It's Without it, you could have the best idea in the world and no one is going to hear you mm. because they don't trust you. If they feel they, they, if you, if they feel that you're not being authentic and that you haven't taken the time to understand who they are, they see your any strength that you have, like a great idea, isn't a gift. It's a threat. Right. You know, it's, it's not something that they're open to. It's, they, they don't want to hear that from you until they know that you have their best interests in mind. Huh. It's, it really is. It's kind of a subtle the, – it's the conduit. If, and if we don't get it, then we go in and we fake. And it's almost like we learn this – is this just inherent human nature that we learn to kind of fake what the crowd wants us to be? So be fake. Um, Where do we learn I that? Think, well, I think that we're taught that. I mean, I think that there's a lot of 
you know, a lot of the sort of leadership books and books in the sort of self-help genre for a while were focused on you know how to influence people and it was it was again it was very much the focus was on um manipulating some aspect of yourself to influence people or or to exploit some characteristic of other people to to influence them it was also sneaky and machiavellian yeah. you know? and uh I, so i think we we learned that in a very explicit way at least in western culture uh, I, I'm not sure that we're born wanting to do things that way. So you think you want to just be you, why, right? And part of why it doesn't work is because I don't think it's in our nature to, um, you know, try to manipulate every aspect of the situation to our advantage. Hmm. It's just it, it's not natural. Is it? I mean, it, it's. I look at my young kids, ten year olds, thirteen year olds, and I think because you know they're all. They are all kind of now in the, thrown into the midst of these gamesmanship and social weird – like, hey, dad, I got to have these shoes. I got to have these shoes because these shoes will make me I more know. obviously in the group. Where, where does – I mean where does that come from? I guess the same thing. That's really – yeah, it's really tough. I, I, I mean I have a 13-year-old and I, I think he's very self-aware. But of course he's – you know, he's still susceptible to those things, too. Sure. We do talk a lot about it. You know, what, is it really what you like or is it what you think somebody wants? And, you know, will you feel like yourself if you wear them? Like, what happens with him often is that he'll say, it doesn't really feel like my style. And so he ends up backing down from buying, you know, wanting to buy this this pair of shoes. Yeah. Because he realizes that even if he wore it, he would feel phony and he hates feeling phony. I, I think most people do. I think he's particularly in touch with that, but, but I think most people don't like feeling phony. And certainly kids are learning this. Um, I'm not sure that they're learning it at a younger age, but I do think social media speeds things up. It's, you know, the, the, the amount of feedback that you're getting from other people, that what other people think of you mm-hmm. is happening just at breakneck speed now. So, Imagine like a child trying to be him or herself, but they're Snapchatting with with somebody. And, you know, if they don't hear back from them in four seconds, they think they've been rejected. (laughs) Or if they don't get 100 likes on Instagram in the first minute, they think they've been rejected. There is an enormous amount of information, feedback information that they're taking in from other people and then trying to adjust to match whatever that expectation is and to, to exceed what they did the last time, but it, nothing is about self-reflection. Huh. It's all about what they're getting back from other people or not getting back from other people. There, there's no time for them to sit and be quiet and think. You know, it's really sad. Is, <laughs> it's really troubling to me. Your book, Presence, it, I mean, pre- being present, I, I'm assuming, and being in the moment would, in, would enable, would enhance our ability to self-reflect. And yeah, to and to yeah, evaluate so when, when, the data. That's right. Or to or to say that this data that I'm getting in from other people. Um, it, so here's here's one thing that happens. So when we're present, so when we're able to, you know, the way that I think of it is, you are you are you are in tune with your best self and able to bring that best self forward in a confident and comfortable way. You're not feeling threatened. So as a result, your brain is open to hear what's actually happening and not necessarily what people think of you, but just what they are thinking. 
in mm. general. And so then you can respond not to what you worry might be happening, but to what is actually happening. So one of the greatest teachers I've had, I said to her once, when did you realize you, and she, you know, she, she teaches teachers. She's a fantastic teacher. And I said, when did you realize you're a great teacher? And she said, I knew I was competent at this. Like, I, you know, I knew that this was not something that was hard for me. But the moment when I knew I had switched from a good teacher to a great teacher was when I was in class and I realized that I was no longer worrying about what they thought of me. I was just paying attention to what they were thinking. Hmm. Right? So it wasn't, it, it wasn't the self-focus of what do they think of me. It was well, what do they think about the material and what about this material is you know, resonating with them or not resonating with them. And so that's about being in the moment without fear, or at least with courage. When we have that kind of courage, it frees up our working memory, which is the part of memory that integrates new information with old information and allows us to respond effectively. When we're present, working memory is much, much more available to us. We become more creative. We become just generally sort of less anxious and less threatened. We become more optimistic and confident. Uh, we're more likely to see challenges not as threats but as opportunities. It's just this cascade of good things when we're feeling present. And, and, and if we can – that is – wow. That's like yeah. – that, that's that's – that's the deal maker in all of life, right? That makes that would make our love better. That would make our our studies better, our confidence, our relationships, our our everything we do would be at a higher level just when we get over ourselves. That's right, and you know sometimes I say sometimes we have to get out of our we have to get get out of the way of ourselves so that we can be ourselves. Yeah, you know, we, we, it's sort of like we're the ones. It's our it's our sort of ruminations, and you know, uh, one, one thing they call, they call it post-event processing. So after you leave a situation and you can't stop thinking about it, mm-hmm. what you should have done differently, those things get in the way of us being present in the next moment, right? So we're so frustrated that we weren't present in the last moment that now it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> yeah, that all day you're just forcing cycle. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we've all done that where we then sat up and we thought, oh. I didn't even answer that person's question. You know, have yeah, you ever done exactly. that? Like you just realized oh, five hours definitely. later that you just walked away without answering. Yeah, the question. you did. Or you did. Yeah, you answered the question you wanted to answer uh-huh. instead of the one that was actually being asked. And yeah, I've, I've had that happen for sure. I, oh. I, I, you know, it's not like you ever get over this completely. You just learn to do it better. And I think that's another really important part of the message. It's that no one ever reaches some permanent you know, monk-like state of presence, not even a monk, because monks are human, and humans cannot be present all the time. Yeah. Some people are, you know, work at it uh, for a long time and are able to spend more of their lives in that psychological present moment, but most of us are going to be distracted. Thoughts are poking through, you know, other duties are, you know, calling, and it's just, it's just, sorry, it's very, very hard. I'm, it's very, very hard for us to be, uh, yeah, to, to, to be present all the time. So yeah. we, need, we really need to focus on the next moment. So we need to focus on the moment in front of us, not on uh, a moment a year in the future. Or, you know, we, we can't have these big, long-term, abstract goals 
that are focused on what we want to rid ourselves of. We need to focus on, you know, the process uh, that we're going to be involved in in the next moment. So let me just give you a quick example. Um, One of the, you know, I I get thousands of emails from people and they tell me these stories about their challenges and how how they interacted in those moments, how they felt when they left. And, you know, most people walk into these situations with dread and they execute them with a kind of anxiety, and they leave them with a feeling of regret. And I want people to not leave with that feeling of regret. So this young man, his name is Will Cuddy. He's not related to me, mm. but he's a young actor in Oregon. And he, his agent called and said, you need to try out for this role in a feature film. It's going to be filmed in Oregon, and um, they want a young, outdoorsy guy, and you're perfect for the role. And he thought, there's no way. Like, I've done a couple of acne commercials as a kid. You know, I'm not ready to do a feature <laughs> film. So he goes, but he's confident as a person in general, and that's important. It's, it's, this book is not for people who are never confident. It's right. for all of us who have these moments of self-doubt. So he gets there. He looks around the room at the people in the room and goes, oh, no way. Like, there's no way that I should be here. And he immediately is flooded with self-doubt. So he, uh, he said, I remember that my friend told me that if I ever get nervous, I should stand in a bathroom like Wonder Woman for two minutes and it would make right, me feel right. better. He said, I knew no, I, I had no idea where it came from or what, why it was supposed to work, but I did it. And I came back out and, you know, of course he's referring to the power posing research. Right. He looks around the room and now he sees these guys not as competitors, but as just other humans who are in the same position he's in. You know, who are who are striving to do well, um, and who are probably feeling a little nervous too. So he goes into the audition and feels that it's one of the most, you know, happy, um, sort of liberated, fun moments of his life. He just enjoys it so much. He thinks, you know, I'm not going to get the role, but wow, what a cool experience to have had. You know, this, and so he's engaging with the director and the casting people, and he said it was the best audition of his life. So he leaves, and his dad says, his dad's there, which I think is very sweet, and his dad says, how did it go? And he said, I nailed it. Hmm. And his dad said, of course. He said, so you got the role? And he said, oh, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, no. Great. I just, right, so he, he almost forgot about the outcome. That's it wasn't great. about a New Year's resolution. It wasn't about the concrete outcome. He was so in the moment that that was the sense of satisfaction that he had. Now, he, of course, got the role because he was he so killed in the it, yeah. In the movie, you can actually see him in the movie Wild. He is one of the young hikers that she meets at the end of the trail. Oh, that's great. Uh, so, and he even gets a credit. But that happened not because he was working so hard to be his very best. It, it happened because he was able to be present. Right. Oh, Amy, this is awesome. Let's take a break. I, I want to come back and have you teach us m- more of how our body language, like that's a great example of just doing our body going into like a, the power pose, for example, naturally will set us up to feel some more power, and I want you to give us more tools to do that. Dr. Amy Cuddy is joining us, author of the book Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. She's, uh, she's helping us uncover how to be present and, and really in our power, in our confidence, so that, so that we can leave the best on the table and not walk away wondering, oh, I blew that or thinking we had blown it. We're going to come back, continue the discussion. We're also going to come back and talk about 
that feeling that most of us have every once in a while where we just feel like a fake, where we feel like a fraud. She's got some insight into that that uh, is so powerful. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with this, Dr. Amy Cuddy, uh, who is, um, you know, she's she's the expert. Now, I'm sure she'd hate to hear that. Uh, Amy Cuddy works at Harvard Business School, a professor there, also is the author of the book Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. She's teaching us today about how to use our, our body language to actually create the confidence we need to deliver at our highest level so we can feel good about what we've done. Um, Dr. Amy Cuddy, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Hey, talk about Steve Colbert. You go on the Steve Colbert show, you walk out there. I mean, I can only imagine that's got to be terrifying, but you walk out there and strike a confidence pose, uh, <laughs> just stretch out on the couch and nail it. Uh, well, it's funny. I didn't really mean to stretch that much, but it, it, of course, elicited this, 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 you know, response in him uh, that was, pretty, and it sort of went from there. Yeah. One of the things I was told uh, when preparing for the interview by the producers was, you know, be prepared for anything. <laughs> I think that's how you go into that show. Yeah. You know, being open to uh, allowing him to be funny because that's what people want to see. Right. You know, they want to see him be himself. Well, now let me ask you because after that, um, did you feel like you left it all there? Did you feel like you left your best self there? Um, I felt like I did the best given the circumstances. Yeah. So I felt like. Well, I wish he had asked me these other questions where I could have, you know, dug into the content of the book more. That's not that's not where he was. Right. So I I did feel that I was able to respond to what was happening, not what I wished had happened. Hmm. And and so yeah, I guess I would say, do I wish the whole thing had been a little bit different? Probably, but that would have required me to have control over another person, which I don't have. Yeah. So. I, I had decided in advance that I would allow myself to go in whatever direction he took it. You know, I knew that he he wasn't he had no sinister intentions. Like he, no, he didn't want he's to having fun. Yeah, and he's learning. Doing. Yeah, exactly. So if that if he's going to be having more fun than being serious, that's fine. So yeah, I think I, I felt pretty good about it. <laughs> oh, I think you're great. And and two, this is the neat thing about this is you you yourself have done the same battle that. Most, I guess, of us have, the humans have, where we lack confidence. You you tell a story in your TED Talk about when you finally, I think, it was, I can't remember if it was at Princeton or Harvard, where you finally made it there and you felt like a fraud. You felt like, yeah. do they not know yeah. that I'm a fake? Talk about that. Definitely. I mean, I, it was, you know, when I started at Princeton as a grad student after you know having had this head injury and barely making it through college. I, you know, you know, it took me four extra years to finish college because of the head injury. So I did not think I belonged there. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to keep up with these people. And it's just a matter of time. You know, I'm just, 
I'm just you know like waiting for the other shoe to fall um, for them to find out that I'm that I would you know I was an admissions mistake. Mm. I think a lot of people feel yeah uh, have or or that I was a hiring mistake. You know these people are smarter than I am. So it was definitely a, a state of mind that I inhabited for a long long time, and it 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 forces it it kind of takes you hostage and makes you avoid challenging situations because your your every challenging situation when you feel like an imposter is a potential opportunity for you to be found out by other people mm-hmm. right so as long if if you're exposing who you are somebody might come in and go up oh, she's a phony we're kicking her out you know so, so that's how i approach i think everything um and you know my advisor sort of pushed me at one point when I was about ready to quit out of fear to sort of fake confidence. She didn't say it exactly like that, but she was saying, look, you have the knowledge. It was was the night before I was giving a talk to the department. She said, you have the knowledge. The thing in the way is just your confidence. And so you're going to have to fake the confidence part Hmm. to yourself. And, and, uh, and, give the talk and it's probably not going to be great, but it's going to be fine. It will be competent and it will get easier every time because the more you do it, the easier it becomes. We all know this. This is true. This is the way life works. Right. The more you do these challenging things, the easier they become. And so eventually it wasn't like a you know magical overnight thing, but years down the road, I looked back and went, wow, not only has this gotten much easier for me, but I actually like giving talks now. Yeah. And I never thought that that could have happened. <laughs> now so, now yeah, you're killing was, it. You know, the idea. Right. Is it? Yeah. It, uh, is the yeah. body, you, you, in a lot of the research, it really is the body will naturally bring you a sense of calm or a sense of confidence by just simply how you present your body. That is right. part so, of the premise. Yeah, so it's it's true that what you know when you lack confidence and you feel powerless, just like other animals, you start to make yourself small physically. You contract, you wrap yourself, you know, up, up you wrap your arms around your torso, you touch your face or your neck, you cover your eyes, you you know, you, you sort of pull your knees up to in a fetal position mm-hmm. when you're really scared. When you feel powerful, you do the opposite. You expand and take up a lot of space. And so although those are outcomes of feelings, they also can be causes of feelings. So when you're feeling the stress or the anxiety, the imposter syndrome before uh, you know, a challenging moment, you're probably, your body is going to naturally collapse and make itself small. You have, you have to fight that. You have to make yourself open up, hold your shoulders open, breathe deeply and slowly, move slowly. You know, if you need to hold something in your hand to keep your arms expand, you know, extended, mm. do that. Because all of those things are signaling to your brain that you're not in a threatening situation. And, it, and it doesn't matter. It, collapsing. Right. I guess that doesn't matter. Yeah, like you're saying, it, it, whether it's cause or effect, it doesn't matter. Your body's going to respond appropriately. Yeah, the body and the mind are constantly in conversation. And, you know, we we tend to think of it as humans. We think that the body is following the mind, that we decide to do something and then we do it. The thing is, often the body's leading the mind. So one of my favorite quotes uh, is from William James, who's the first American psychologist. 
he said, um, I don't sing because I'm happy. I'm happy because I sing. Hmm. So his idea, and it, it, he had many quotes like that, but was that I do things to change the way I feel. You know, I change my body so that I, ch- so I can change the way I feel as opposed to the opposite. So it, it, it works in both directions, yeah. but we tend to neglect the body-mind direction as humans. And I think partly it's because it's, uh, it, 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 it makes us feel primitive because sort of that's the way animals are, mm-hmm. and we're animals as well, but we don't want to think of ourselves as primitive. So we like to think that we can think our way out of anxiety, and we're actually really, really bad at doing that. <laughs> yeah. We're much better at giving it over to something else. That is so – it's such great advice. What um, – and just research, I think. Again, this concept of confidence, uh, imagine how much more we could all elevate our game, our lives, our sense of peace by, by, by just understanding a few basic principles. As we, as, we're, as we wrap up today, give us – what's one more thing? If there's one more thing we can do to remain present, if there's one more thing we could do – to increase the ability to be confident and leave our, you know, let our, leave our music to be played. Um, what, what is that one thing that makes the biggest difference? Oh well, I'm not. I don't know if it's the one that makes the biggest difference. It's hard on the spot to yeah. come up with that one. But let me just give you one little nugget that I think we is useful to most of us. We are constantly hunching over our phones, and. You know, we're holding them, and we're, our shoulders are slouched, and our chins are down, and we are adopting the posture of a depressed, <laughs> sad, powerless person. And that is really bad for us. By opening up, you know, don't, you've got to get yourself out of the habit of doing that. So set reminders on your phone every hour to check your posture. Make sure you're holding your phone in an upright position. Set up your workspace so that it allows you to stretch out, to reach for the mouse, you know, things like this. Get up and walk, walk, walk around during the day. All of those things are going to trigger effects in your mind that will make life much easier. Mm. I, and it's, I feel it. I feel, the, I feel it that way. It's, there's power in, um, in, in us and in our bodies. I, I so am excited to, to get uh, more into your work and find out more about what you're doing. Dr. Amy Cuddy, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And uh, I, honestly, the minute you started talking, everyone sits up in our office now. We all just oh. we all we're all sitting up straighter. I mean, somebody's still doing the the Wonder Woman pose, and we wish he would stop it. Um, that's good stuff, Dr. Amy Cuddy. Everybody, go look up this book, uh, Presence: Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. Great, uh, great insight in life. Uh, we're going to take a break. Again, remember the goal of the show is to help you uh, live longer, love stronger, lead a healthier life. What better way to start it than with presence and confidence, thanks to the work of Dr. Amy Cuddy. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to your to the Matt Townsend Show. Isn't it great to to find a leader, an expert, um, a researcher that that's not here to just you know have you win more, make more money? I mean, all of these things I'm sure could be used to do that, but just to be confident. Do you not feel more confident when you when you know you can do the job, when you've got the skills, when you've got the ability? 
if all you lack is the confidence in the moment, then let's just prepare ourselves a little bit better to be confident in the moment. Let's I mean, if, if it is seriously as simple as some of uh, the research bears out, just get your chest out there, shoulders back, stand up straight, breathe, for heaven's sakes, get some air into your system, and you might have some pretty amazing, amazing things happen to you. Um, it really is, when you think about it, too, uh, it's, it's, it's a, something as simple as... W- just what you wear sometimes. Uh, I don't know if you heard this story out of uh, British Columbia, but there was a mayor that wore the same suit for 15 months to highlight sexist double standards. In Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada Mayor Richard Stewart wore the same suit for 15 months and no one seemed to notice. He wore it to council meetings and events. He even wore it when he was interviewed by Global News last September on a council matter. Neither his colleagues nor his public seemed to pay any mind. You know, it's a suit. It served me well, he said. But uh, Stewart didn't put on the same nondescript dark blue jacket and trousers for more than a year because he's lazy. He was trying to make a point about how men and women in the public eye are treated differently. He said, I think the point I was trying to capture is that we do seem to treat women differently than men in lots of different occupations, particularly those in uh, public life. Women, we watch everything they wear, and we found out in other research recently, women pay more for the clothes that they wear, which seems crazy. Male male trousers, female pants, whatever. You know what? Guess what? Women are going to pay more. These little kind of nonverbal things that we see, just the clothes we wear, we judge each other by it. And apparently we don't judge a man the same way we might judge a female but confidence is going to be there. So some of us then get our confidence from our clothes. And what Dr. Amy Cuddy was just teaching us is you might be able to just get your confidence from your pose or from um, what you are doing with your own body. So pay attention to how you sit. Pay attention to how you present yourself. Do you end up curling up in a ball when you hold your phone? It's something pretty simple. My son's always like, my neck hurts. Yeah, it's because you're curled up in a ball. Come on. Folks, we can uh, we can gain some confidence just by positioning ourselves a little bit better physically. Excellent stuff. We'll take a break. That's hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. Next hour, we'll be talking about parenting. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Well, we just heard some some wonderful advice about how to rethink your thinking. And there's something inherent and I think essential uh, as all of us. What we're assuming then is that we have a choice on our thinking. Is, is you only have a choice if you if you recognize the choice. If you wait too long and allow the thought to just, you know, jump in the sled and start its way down the hill, there's a point that you're not going to turn that around. The speed's going to pick up and uh, the grooves may already be cut for the sled and you're just going to follow the last 500 paths that you've taken. If you want to create the new thought, you have to eventually recognize 
the stinking thinking. You got to recognize where it's uh, where you're having the thought that maybe you don't want to have. And a key point is don't don't freak out about it. Right? Don't get so caught up like I got to stop. I got to stop it. Oh my heavens! Because I think that very energy, that emotion, is what's going to drive the thought more chemical. Remember, your thoughts bring chemistry. So if I ask you to think of somebody that hurt you or offended you as a child, can you think of somebody? Can you think of somebody that made you feel less than or demeaned or somebody who hurt your feelings in high school or junior high? If you can still remember the thought and have the feelings, it's because thoughts have feelings and chemistry and recipes of chemistry associated with each thought. Those thoughts are stored. They're called scripts. And once you once you kind of inject emotion into a thinking pattern, like somebody that is sinning, doing something that they believe they shouldn't be doing or knowing they shouldn't be doing, they might start building every time they do an act, look at something they shouldn't look at. They might then create a reaction like, oh, man, God's going to be mad. I'm so bad. I'm, and they get in and they take all of that emotion and they pile it back onto the thought. And it just keeps compounding the issue, compounding it, digging it deeper, making it deeper, harder to get out of. So at some point, we don't need you to beat yourself up. I, I honestly believe if your God, if he were sitting next to you when you committed that mistake or that sin or whatever you want to call it, your God wouldn't just sit there and induce a lot of horrible feelings on you. Your God would just love you, right? And bring some peace to you. <sighs> Not that you're perfect, but that you're loved. And once you could probably feel that feeling that you're loved— then we can go and evaluate the thought. And you might start to recognize that before the thought, there was a, there was a, there was a subtle pre-thought feeling. One of the things that we've been taught a lot uh, from some of the professors here at BYU about, for example, pornography addiction, is that two of the biggest drivers of the addiction are anxiety and uh, boredom. So if you have a little anxiety on board, that may create the thought that maybe we ought to go do looking go start looking at some porn which then creates feelings which then drives action or boredom hey there's nothing going on here maybe i ought to go look at that thing that and then off we go part of what we want to do is not just add on a ton of negativity and a, ne- a bunch of guilt and pain what we might want to do is just recognize what is the pre-thought what are the th- thoughts you have And then, like our good doctor was telling us, maybe turn it into a song, maybe make it funnier, maybe do something to, you know, get rid of the emotional tension so we don't just gang up and drive these things deeper. Anyway, it's just an idea, right? But it's an idea that can make us better. Know that your thoughts are driven by your echoes of your history. And those echoes aren't going away, but they are yours. You're here on this earth to act and not just be acted upon, even by your history that was misunderstood by a five-year-old boy. It's time to act. Let's start trying. Start making fun of our thoughts a bit. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When you think about it, if everybody 
has some reason to be a little messed up, right? We got our parents to blame. You know, we've got people in our world around us to blame. We have, you know, somebody in our childhood that hurt us or harmed us. So then you look at these foster care kids who really don't have any control. They, they, it's not like they can just be positive and think their way out of this. They have a hole that they're digging and they need to get out of it. And sometimes they just need you. So seriously, go evaluate if there's some way you could get involved, um, whether time, money, energy, whatever you've got, uh, it makes a difference. I used to do a lot of training where I would take these families and, and just help them strengthen their marriages, their relationships, to make sure that they were learning you know, good communication skills so that it wasn't destroying a marriage as they were fostering and caring for these kids. Um, one of the things that I have found is, is key to parenting, as I coach a lot of parents and I coach a lot of kids, is uh, there's a few tricks about helping our kids believe in themselves. Um, a lot of talk is is thrown out there about self-esteem and kids need to have self-esteem and understand their own um, their own sense of who they are and and what they what they bring to this world and, and I think that's true except what they also I believe need is uh, just they just need to know they're that they that they're cared for that they're worth something and I don't know. We got to be careful as we are working with our families and our kids and our younger folks, our young adults, the uh, those just graduating maybe from high school, that we need to validate their worth, not just their works. Right? Like we talk a lot about what our kid did and when he's graduating from high school, yeah, he graduated from high school. He he was, you know, um valedictorian, top of his class, and we talk about all of these accomplishments. But as soon as we're tying our child's worth to their accomplishments, we might be setting them up for something. Uh cuz most kids aren't valedictorian, right? There's one of those per class. So there's 500 that aren't. And yet, if that's what we keep seeing that everyone talks about, we start getting this social mirror reflecting back on us saying, you're not quite cutting it. We want to validate people's worths. And their worth is not just their works. It's not just their touchdown or their looks or their fame or the money they make. You know what it might also be is just their their work ethic, their their sense of um, care for others. They... Um, their inherent value just simply because they're loved by a God, right? And so validate worth, not just works. Don't get caught up on outcomes only. A lot of parents are, and it it sets your children up to not necessarily value themselves. Another rule is to encourage your kids by understanding them, right? Encourage by itself means that we get within the heart of another. So do you even know what your child's goals are? I have parents come in all the time and they tell me, I don't, my kids won't listen to me. Well, they won't listen to you because you don't seem to care what's in their heart. Well, of course I do. Well, not if you're always telling them what to do. So when it comes to your kids, if you really want to encourage them, you got to listen a lot more. Then you're speaking. And that, ex- that by letting them express 
even if they're expression you don't like or is it you know it frustrates you or it's not motivated enough it doesn't matter let them express shine a light on their strengths identify what they are good at go figure out take these strengths assessments we talk about on the show all the time um and Go learn about what they're good at. What are their character strengths? And there's we've talked about it on the show recently with Fatima Doman and her strengths program. So if you just go look up our our um, our uh, what are they called our podcasts. That's it. Go look up our podcast and listen to him, folks, and go figure out what your kid's strengths are. Is is he intuitive? Is he hardworking? Is he social skills? Is he spiritual? And once you know what their strengths are, help them identify daily when they're progressing. Don't just look for where they're not progressing, which is so easy to critique. Why is your room such a mess? Man, you're reading a lot since you got out of school. Why are you reading so much? Talk about what they're doing well. Because if you pinpoint the progress and you know what they, their strengths are, you might start helping them believe in themselves. Heaven forbid. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is part of the problem. That is some of the anger, the frustration you see in middle America. And it seems like the middle America kind of blue collar worker might be a little more pro-Trump, I guess. Who knows exactly. But uh, the younger America, pro-Bernie. Some are frustrated seeing a politician uh, or politicians like the Clintons be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, just seems weird. That's uh, This is based on what Rana was teaching us. Maybe this is why so many people want to see Hillary Clinton's uh, transcripts, right, to what she said to these organizations that are taking 25 percent of the money of our economy. And – Maybe the same reason why they want to see what Donald's been doing on his taxes. People are mad. (sighs) And we've got to somehow take our country back when it comes to our our businesses, our economy. We are so into, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Just fatten yourself up and tomorrow will be fine. But uh, it doesn't – it doesn't – seem like that. It seems like we might be setting ourselves up for another fall when a tiny percentage of Americans have enough savings to cover their bills for three months when like 5 percent, maybe 10 percent of America could cover their three months of bills if, if they stopped working today. That's scary. If everyone else is living paycheck to paycheck, we need some tough love, and the problem is we keep looking to leaders to do it, and I think the we might be giving our leadership way too much um, – what's the word? Respect? <laughs> we might be thinking that our, our Congress people are going to solve some of this stuff, and they obviously can't, especially if the legislation is being written by the companies and the organizations that are um, – that are – benefiting. So this is our deal. This is our issue. And what I would love to have happen, we need a little tough love. Okay. So there's there's a story I found on CNN about a dad who sells his disrespectful son's SUV on Craigslist. Okay. He's just had it. He's fed up with his son smoking weed and acting all thug-like, a Florida dad uh, said. So he sold his teen's SUV on Craigslist. 
Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And he agreed to take $250 off the price if the buyer lived in the area just so his son would see the vehicle every now and then to remind him of how good he had it. Now, is that just a petty dad? No, no, it's not. It's a smart dad. I'd take 500 off if you could get a neighbor to buy it. And let the son see that you can't treat people like that. He wrote on Craigslist, I have my son's truck up for sale that I bought for him as his first car. He thinks it's cool to drive around with his friends smoking dope and acting all thug, especially not showing me and my wife the respect we deserve. This was a vehicle to finish school in, get a decent job and get a head start in life, but chose to throw it all away because his friends would rather have an influence on him than me. He'd rather have his friends have an influence on him more than I do. Now he can't uh, put those Jordans to use. Now now he can put the Jordans to use and walk, um, you know, a little square word there, uh, walk his blank off on the way to school. The truck's nice. It has ice cold air, power, everything. It's it's dirty inside, but, you know, with somebody with a little pride and respect can clean that right up. So it's on sale. And maybe that's what we need is somebody to come in and just whip us and just take us out and say, I mean, do we need another economic collapse? Or can you do something about it? Just ask yourself, what can you do about it? If your answer is nothing, then we got to rethink, right? And keep listening. We'll find ways. One way is to stay informed. Another way is to vote. And if you're frustrated with voting on the national level, vote on the local level. Look at your Congress people. They're having a huge impact on your life. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Julie K. Nelson's joining us. She is the bomb mom. She's also the author of Parenting with Spiritual Power and um, received a master's degree in marriage and family and human development. She currently teaches parenting classes, marriage and relationship skill classes at Utah Valley University. And she's here to enlighten us on emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. This is a big deal. Many people wouldn't even know what emotional abuse is because they know what abuse is. Yeah. But what is emotional abuse? Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me come on this important topic. Um, yeah, emotional abuse is one of the three main types of abuse. We have sex, we have f- physical, and we have emotional, but we don't uh, often recognize what it is because there's no scars left behind. Right. And so you can't prove anything. You can't go and show evidence. And then what happens with the emotional um, person, that, the victim, is that they start to question, did it even happen or was I? did I, did I interpret? Yeah, that- that wrong yeah. or did he say is this that? Me? Yes, it's me, is it's him. And so that's why the abuser is so good at manipulating this each scenario so that you don't think it's really them, it's really you. Hmm. And therefore you don't really your reality changes and there's no evidence, there's no scars to show. Yeah. And but, they're long more much more long lasting than physical scars. Well and you're not gonna get through life without emotions, right? And you're either gonna distort them so that it seems like this would actually kind of warp your emotional capacity. Yeah, and dependence upon your abuser. Hmm. Because you go to the abuser for um, signs of uh, who am I Yeah, validation. Uh-huh. And... Mm-hmm. They define who you are. Um, and because I come on with a lot of um, – 
the perspective of parenting, I want to just kind of show that there's a strong correlation in research between those who witness abuse, those children that are seeing this in, during childhood and subsequent violence towards children as they become adults. Yeah. Um, and approximately 15.5 million American children living in a two-parent household are exposed to partner violence within the past year. And 7 million of these these children witness severe partner abuse, like being beat up, choked, burned, life-threatened with a gun or knife. And women are the most often the victims. So, so these are children watching uh, mm-hmm. domestic violence, spousal abuse, mm-hmm. and 15 million see some form of it. 7 million see, see, severe. see severe violent. Mm-hmm. And then this impacts them emotionally. This is why, I mean, in domestic violence, there's a difference between domestic violence and domestic violence in front of a child. Yes. So the minute that the child is around, the penalties are even yeah. harsher. You're creating a whole other generation of abusers. Yeah. And because today's International Women's Day, did you know that? Yes, Happy, I, of course. We've talked I want, about I wanted to come on and just kind of do a little bit of a plug for women because they're most often the, the, the victims in this. Um, it's and, huge. And household partners are now in homes where they're not married, and those increase violent behavior. And um, mothers are unable to even provide basic um, care for their kids when they're being victimized in such a way because they're just trying to protect themselves out of safety and survival. Yeah. So the the one topic I want to talk about is they have a term for it called gaslighting. Yeah, explain um, that. Yeah. It's um, another word for emotional abuse based on the movie Gaslight. Have you ever heard of that with Ingrid Bergman? No. Who is brainwashed and manipulated by her husband and starts questioning her sanity. Um, and so the spouse is saying things like, you're crazy, you're worthless, you're a terrible wife, and much, much worse. Hmm. They may not believe that about themselves to begin with, but after so much time, it becomes part of the picture of who they are. And, you know, uh, what Robert Stern from Yale Center of Emotional Intelligence said this, when the person you love persistently tries to redefine your reality and nothing you do or say makes any difference, you begin to see yourself through their eyes. Maybe I am forgetful. Maybe I am stupid. Maybe I am crazy. You start mistrusting or second-guessing yourself. Hmm. And why would why would somebody choose to to gaslight is it just their inability to accept their own responsibility for what's going on so they've just overwhelmed their partner and it's a control try to get them to yeah, think they're crazy yeah it's an intimidation crazy. intimidation and control method hmm. and what you know not not uh, very common do people in dating date someone who's telling them all these messages now sometimes yeah. it just validates what they already feel, already feel about themselves um, but it could be that you're dating a very charismatic person and emotional abusers are very good at being charismatic and showing a different side during dating or to the public and so you're very attracted to this person you fall in love with them and then therefore love Blind you. Yeah. And then they start doing things during the dating process or after marriage where they do things where they control and isolate you. Um, So it's more, again, common with men abusers. But he might convince his wife to quit her job or he sabotages her so she has to quit or she gets fired. He often gets her to move away from family and friends, making him choose between making her choose between him and her. Well, you know, you can't go to this party because I'm not going. So you have to stay home with me because, you know, you can't leave me. Yeah. And um you know, one example of a husband is when he kept calling his wife, she'd go out with friends, and then he'd call her home. The, the daughter, our daughter is having you know, trouble. She's sick or whatever. She'd come home, and the daughter would be just fine. Oh, wow. Um, and then this wife said, um, on one level, I knew I wasn't crazy, but he wore me down. After a few years, I felt totally hopeless and worthless. He was literally destroying me. I started to feel like suicide was my only way out. 
Hmm. A lot of times they use um, in their charisma, they use things like jealousy. Um, I'm just I'm just so jealous of other people. I don't want you to spend time with them because what if they find you as attractive as I do? And then, you know, they, they don't I don't want to feel like, you know, I'm going to lose you to anybody else. And so they use this kind of the, almost like um, I'm trying to guilt you. Yeah. And so they use jealousy for control. They don't want others um, out there. So her out there. So other, others can you know fall in love with them. They don't want to lose them. They text a lot. But this it's, is all controlling. This yes. Is just manipulation. And in, in dating, this is very um, flattering for someone to be texting you all the time and telling them how much you love you and I can't live without you. Yeah. And this constant barrage of texting and messages and I want to know where you're at every moment because I just I can't be without you. This so to some women might feel like that's a flattering thing, but that is a huge red flag. Yeah, that's a sign that this is unhealthy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If they can't live without you, yeah. That's there's a problem. Yeah, where they're so dependent upon you emotionally and therefore I'm going to manipulate you so that you can't ever leave me. Yeah. Um and they you know will say things even to the point where if you left me I would kill myself. And so they do stay because out of guilt. Yeah, I don't want yeah, I don't yeah. want to be a part of that. Yeah. Um, so a lot of things will happen where um, even the abuser will start um, – things will start to disappear around the house, things that are valuable, and then blame it on her forgetfulness. Um, so she starts thinking she's going crazy. Um, they often t- – you start ending up – eventually down the road, start brandishing weapons. Hmm. Um, not that they do anything physical. Now, of course, physical abuse can accompany emotional abuse or gaslighting. Right. Oftentimes it does, and they start to you know do something physical. But but there are you know many cases where it's just emotional abuse, and they'll just start to you know have a gun around and put it under their pillow just to show signs of power and to make her nervous because there's a gun next to her. Or he might kind of hold it around her face and say, you know, you never know when I might need to use this sometime. Mm. Doing that kind of intimidation type thing. Um, So um, what's interesting, Matt, is that studies show that women who are in these situations, and also can be men, it can be reversed, so let's not always just say it's that way, but majority, and because it's International Women Day, I want to just really highlight and empower women, that they often never leave, or if they do, it takes them about seven times Research will show seven times to finally break away for good. They'll break away, then come back, break away, then come back about seven times. Well, that's not even – many would think that's – well, come on. Just – that's weak. Yeah, just go ex- away. Exactly. But these people are that manipulative too. So they mm-hmm. seem like they're going to change when you start going away. OK, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. They might fake a change or whatever or think they're going to change and it doesn't last. Exactly. They promise that they'll make changes. That's a cycle of abuse yeah. where they apologize. That mostly happens with someone who is a physically or sexually abusing where they'll do something that's very horrific mm-hmm. and then they'll come back on their hands and knees and say, I'm so sorry. And they blame it on something else like I had a hard day at work yeah. or you just tipped me off and um, and I apologize. It won't happen again. And so the, the partner's appeased. Everything's fine again. And you're back back to the person I loved, and then it starts over again. Mm. Um, with emotional abuse, the person really just starts to have no self-esteem at all, realizing they can't live without the bounds of what their partner's created for their own world. Which is why they can't leave. Yes, yeah, why they can't leave. And we oh. and, and it's, it's really hard because most people just scratch their heads from the outside looking at that going, how in the world could you stay with someone who calls you those names? I mean, they'll even do things where the, the partner will control the finances to the point where you have to beg for every penny. So you can't live without them. Or if they get an allowance, you have to earn it, such as um, you have to get on the scale and show me how much oh, you weigh. I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'll only give you your allowance if you have lost pounds or you're a certain weight. Things like that. It's just really super controlling. So one of, so one of the signs, I guess, is, is controlling nature but around money. Yes. Um, so one of the, th- the things I, I want to really talk about today is um, with, a, with gaslighting, um, there's two ways that they, they can control you, most likely that you will not leave or it's very hard to leave. 
One is the the social isolation, where you have you're not at work, um, you're home with the babies, you have no friends and family, or you have very little contact. Or um, be, even though you might have contact, you're so ashamed, and there's no signs of abuse, and so no one will believe you. Even if you go to your pastor or your priest, they won't. I mean, he's an upstanding citizen; he's a member of our congregation. Yeah. How could he possibly do that? And so nobody believes you. So how could you ever divulge that to anyone? How could how you know? No one would believe you. So you right. start to question. I I I really um, have no worth. I have I can't marry any better. Better. That's yeah. what he makes you believe. I can't do any better. Um, and no one would believe me anyway. Well, you're going to lose the kids. Uh-huh. If we divorce, I'm taking the kids. Yeah, I'll show what you, you're crazy. I'll show you're the lunatic. Yeah. And he will. He'll he'll make you believe that you are the lunatic. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So that's one. What was the other one? And then we'll take and then a break. the finance, and we'll talk about finance when we get back. Because because the, the, then they'll so they'll either and they'll get you away from your friends. Mm-hmm. They'll. So if you have somebody that's pushing you big time, don't go out with your friends. You don't need your family over mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And they're isolating you. That's a sign. Or your mother Your mother never liked me. So, you know, and I, I can't go because she always, you know, she always makes me feel bad. So I'm not going to go to your family because she doesn't like me. So therefore, you have to choose between me and her. You know, mm-hmm. so now and, – and the, and the Bible says, you know, you must leave your family and come live with me. So, so yeah. <laughs> Do you want to believe the Bible or are you going to go you know where? Yeah. Um, excellent. Uh, we're learning some great stuff from Dr. Uh, Dr. Julie K. Nelson. I just made you a doctor. Hey, hey, that's good. You don't want to be a doctor. <laughs> You'll just check moles all day. <laughs> Julie Nelson's joining us. A spoonful of parenting.com is the website. Go look up the website. Uh, you can get all of her latest information. Her books, uh, her other book is Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger 25 Tips for Surviving Parenthood. Today, she's talking about the signs of emotional abuse and what you need to do about it, folks. Uh, important information. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show uh, in studio with us, Julie K. Nelson. She's the bomb mom and the child whisperer. She's here parenting us, teaching us how to be better parents, and just giving us love. Yeah. When you come in, there's just a better feeling in the studio. Hey, there's a good vibe here. It's like it's like we. I feel like I'm safe. Yeah, the sun's come out. I feel know? I feel scared a lot of times. I'm afraid with just when it's just Ben and I in here. But then when you came in. <laughs> I feel safer. Well, Ben is a little scary. Yeah. It's his ice cream making machine. People die. You were talking about uh, emotional abuse. Two things to watch out for. One, if you're being isolated socially, if you're being like – if your partner's saying you don't need friends, you go to your friends too much and you hardly ever go. Your parents, they don't need to be here. If they try to isolate you from people. And another one is money access. If you don't have access to funds, you're being – you're 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 falling into this gaslighting. Mm-hmm. They're starting to they're starting to cut you off. Yeah, so you're exactly right. The partner is so severely eroded the wife's self esteem she can no longer function outside of the controlling abusive partner. She doesn't feel like she is worth anything. I have no more other prospects. And how would I ever survive outside? And anyway, anyway, you know, I I feel so badly about myself, and I have no money. And money is the hugest reason, really, because he's controlled everything. Mostly in, in gaslighting, the partner has taken everything. Yeah. Financial abuse is estimated to be in about ninety nine percent of all emotional control cases. Wow. So virtually them all. 
Um, they account. They make their partner account for every penny. Um, they give them allowances only if they do certain things. Um, or they run the wife's credit rating so poorly that she's trapped. She has mm-hmm. no credit score. Um, and so um, we also mentioned, you know, that religion does play a little bit into it, that partners who um, attend organized religion stay together in abusive marriages longer. Yeah. Um, a husband may use religious dominance to justify his emotional control. He says things like, God gave you to me, you belong to me, and you need to do what I say. Um, That's unrighteous domination. Yes. And the wife said about this um, about this situation, she said, I felt like uh, his slave sexually and physically, but I hid it because I was embarrassed and didn't want the marriage to fail. Mm. In, in religious organizations, v- rightly so, they do high, highly esteem marriage. Um, in in organ in church in churches in organized right. religion and it should be that way but not to the point where people feel like I'm I'm such a failure I don't want to let other people know or I don't want to you know dissolve this marriage or admit that anything's happening because I would be a um, you know a disappointment to right, my yeah. con- to my congregation to my pastor a shame uh huh yeah and they stay in longer than they mm. should um, and therefore the seven times right yeah okay so in in this article by Jenny Graves called How I Broke Free. She has five money tips to help protect the abused partner, whether it's a female or a male. Um, so let's go over those, yeah. Matt. Okay. The first one is um, for whoever's being the victim to maintain full access to all credit cards, bank accounts, everything. She needs to not let him take over control of all those things. Well, and, and if you're if you're in a marriage and you sense that you might be a little more controlling, be careful because you could fall into this trap of being emotionally abusive. One way to not, I guess, is keep open the funds. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a great research shows couples that uh, have different accounts or can over control the money are going to increase the likelihood of divorce anyway. Exactly. Watch out. Yeah. And if you ever want to break free, how are you going to possibly manage if you have no credit score because you yeah. run it down, you're ba- basic, basically in bankruptcy and you cannot um, you know, qualify for any kind and, of credit and card. And to make sure that you have earning ability, that you have – even if you're going to be a stay-at-home mom, you, you still could have – Skills, education, tools in your in your uh, mm-hmm. your quiver. Right, exactly. Good, good point, Matt. Um, second, make all money decisions jointly. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you should be able to be full partner at the table of your fa- family finance. Yeah, one hundred percent. You got to vote. Assert yourself and say, okay, show me, you know. Let's talk about what we're doing. Making a budget together. You make the budget together. You are accountable to each other. Together, you see where you want to put the money, and you feel empowered. And jointly, you're responsible. Yeah. Great um, not just one person's balancing the checkbook, and you you don't know anything that's going on. Um, so make sure that you are a partner with that. Number three, get individual credit cards. You can have joint ones, but also there's a lot of advantages to having your own credit card. If you have your own, then you start racking up some points wherever yeah. you want to go. Yeah, and you get some credit, and you get you get used to managing your own card. Yes. Know? Yes. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. So um, have some individual credit cards. Um, it just is another way of empowering each, yeah. each member of the uh, um, of the household. And then know the social security numbers and bank account numbers of you and your children. Hmm. Um, have those so that if you do need to do a quick getaway at any point, you have all this ready in some kind of an envelope and everything, all the documentations there. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. Um, just five, number five, and finally, be alert to emotional abuse signs regarding money matters. If you're if if your um, 
boyfriend or your partner or husband starts saying things such as, you know, you don't need to do that. You don't need to, mm-hmm. you know, um, then notice that they're trying to pull away your um, and restrict your freedom and pull you towards them, which could be flattering at first where he yeah. will take care oh, of me. He, oh, loves, he me. loves me so He's much. He's going to make me safe. Mm-hmm. But you could almost see that if you grew up in an, abo- in an abusive relationship or family, you might want to be taken care of. Like you want somebody that just will protect you and Take watch all, over make you. Make all the decisions for you. But if you're not careful, you'll fall into the trap of being too dependent. Yeah. yeah. So watch for if you um, perhaps were raised in a home where there was an imbalance of power and that one person wore the pants all the time and one person made all the decisions and the other one cowered a lot mm-hmm. and acquiesced to the other. Did you come from a home where, the, where your parents were like that and it was very inequitable? Do you tend to then – take the dominance or the servant type role, which, you know, because I've seen that mm-hmm. modeling in my home, yeah. um, I tend to gravitate toward a partner who is dominant, just yeah. like my father was or whatever. And that, like you said, that could be, you know, some religious families might be that way because there's kind of that order where the dads, the, the guy, it could also could be military families, mm-hmm. people where there's an, uh, police officers, yeah. where there's an obvious authority. Mm-hmm. And authoritarianism is kind of the approach of getting stuff done. Pay attention to that. Absolutely. Notice the signs. Notice the signs. Oh, yeah. This is good learning. Yeah. Because and this is abuse. Get real clear. Mm-hmm. This is if you're being oppressed, they're not they may not even lay a hand on you. Mm-hmm. But if they're not letting you be your own spirit, make your own decisions and if you don't feel like you're independent or you have any worth. Yeah, or any worth, you're yeah. being oppressed. Yeah. And that's that's the saddest thing is that you wouldn't like I said you would normally not date someone who says you're worthless, you're stupid, you're a cow. But what happens is, is after time and they start flattering you and making you feel like you're their source of mm-hmm. of um validation. Then if they can start twisting that and then doing little things just to make you feel kind of bad, like they start pinching you, say, "Hey, you got a little little extra wow. weight, right? Little little extra yeah. weight right there, hon. You know, got to get." And they start saying things yeah. like that, or "Don't you want to do something about that nose of yours?" And they start saying little jabs. Then you start believing, playing into their hand, right. and then they can start going worse, worse, worse. And then they're the source of all your validation, which is now all negative. So it doesn't always start out like that because right. you know most people are they're not that stupid. Mm-hmm. But uh, to begin with, a partner like that, but the partners know the gaslighting effect and how to do it, and they just slow. Slowly drip, drip, drip. Yes. Great lesson. Uh, Julie K. Nelson, thank you. Mm, hey, glad to have you. Go, go, to, the, go, to, the, to, go to the website, a spoonful of parenting.com. Seriously, all of your past interviews, your blogs, your books, pictures of crying babies, how to <laughs> swaddle, it's all in there. That's how good you are. Hey, it's very comprehensive. Everything you want to know is on there. It's great. Plus, more. Than you've ever wanted to know. <laughs> Things I didn't even know I needed to know, they're on there. They're, it's that much and that much good. Julie K. Nelson's her name, and uh, we couldn't do it without her. She's one of our great contributors. We'll take a break. Thanks, Matt. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Marriage is hard, right? And it's, it's even harder just with the typical issues of life. A spouse maybe that is sick, uh, somebody that has lost their job or has mental health issues. There's so many different problems that can come up. Uh, So am I just supposed to stick it out and stay with somebody that doesn't get me? I hear that all the time. 
And I don't know. But what will you become? And if you do stick it out, and what will you become if you don't? I, I think our assumption is, well, my life would be so much better without it. But many times I think my my wife's differences, her challenges and her tendencies force me to become a better person. They force me to become the change. And I understand that that doesn't always bring happiness today, but it brings change, growth over time. So maybe there is a benefit to sticking in it a little longer. And there would be even a greater benefit if my partner would get the fact, too, that they need to change, right? I mean, I have clients that have been living in a one-sided marriage for years, and their spouse does not seem to get it. They think, ah, she's lucky. I am the greatest man in the world. And so I sit there and I worry... Because a guy says, no, seriously, you are so lucky to have me. <laughs> yeah. It may not. There's a little video of a marriage fight. Uh, it may not. It, it may not be what you think it is. And you can keep blowing smoke that you're just a saint. But the reality is everyone's got issues. And if, if we can't get real with each other then we're probably going to have to – we're going to become something a lot less than we can become as humans. We're going to fall apart. So there are maybe some ways to motivate your spouse. You don't have to cross the line. You don't have to use ultimatums. Um, you don't have to beat them up if you need to see some change. But one of the things you might want to do is is find a way to feel love for your partner before you bring up an issue. Most of the time I found that when we're bringing up our issues with our spouse, we're not bringing up the issue out of love. And why this is so critical is because if I'm feeling anger, if I'm feeling frustrated, if I feel like you're taking advantage of me, then I will approach the conversation through that paradigm, through that way of thinking. And when I do that, my tone's going to be totally off. If I have compassion for my partner who maybe doesn't know how to communicate very well, and I feel love, and I feel an appreciation for them, if I can feel that when I go into the conversation, it might help me actually position our discussion better versus if I'm going into the discussion out of judgment. So be careful. Watch out for how you approach and the tone you approach with. Also make sure that you find the um, on switch that's inside your partner. We need to get into people deeply first and find out What does motivate them? There are things that motivate your partner, and there are things that motivate your partner to be a better partner to you. You've seen it at times. So go in and actually pay attention to what they are telling you that that is a driver. Pay attention to when they are happiest and most connected to you, right? It might be when you're sitting on the couch watching a football game, even though you hate football, but you notice they're so much more into you, or they're not into you, but they're at least connected in a way their way. We got to remember the on switch might be on in inside our partners. We need to go find it in there. Just a couple of ideas, folks, to help you uh, motivate your partner. Find the good. Let's do it. Let's work better on our marriages, guys. Pick it up. Do your part. Come on. 
That's all we got. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. With just the political race the way it is, life seems kind of stressful, doesn't it? Now, it's summer, so sometimes that relieves some of the stress. Maybe you'll be taking a vacation. But I wanted to give you some some ideas, some tools to de-stress your life a little bit. And I got uh, some of these from Fortune Magazine, 15 Things to Do When You're Feeling Stressed. Uh, a great article that was out on June 8th. And, you know, we, we need it. We need to find a way to de-stress if we can. Uh, but one of the ways, the fastest ways that, you know, you may not be thinking about is to increase, to decrease stress, you need to increase your endorphin production. And one of the quickest and surest ways to, to, do, uh, to do that is, you know, just get to the gym. Take a walk. Uh, anything that releases endorphins, because uh, with endorphin releases, there's the the that good feeling, that positive feeling in your body. So, anything, take a walk today, and and maybe just because the news is tense and you got a lot of people that'll be talking about it, maybe at work, take a break, get out, don't just sit around the water cooler and and keep talking about it. Instead, get up, go for a walk, even if you just walk around your building or. Um, just walk around your wherever you are at home. So positive tool, just get some exercise in you. Just simple stuff. Not You don't have to sweat it out, but something simple. Also, um, maybe a good day today, too, to watch what you're eating. Uh, if you want to decrease your stress, obviously, you might want to watch and, and minimize your um, your caffeine intake, but also watching out for the food you eat. And we've talked about it with... Uh, our great Ron Hager, he's telling us all the time, eat whole foods, don't drink your, don't drink your sugars. Um, create, a, a, create a space for yourself. Uh, one thing I've done recently at my own house, I'm writing a, a new book, and I just try to get away. I go to my office, sit down there, and just escape and find a space where I can meditate. Um, I'm getting a little bit better at that. I also have to learn to say no. That's something I'm not great at. We've had on the show just recently some tools on how to say no. So you just go look back in our archives on iTunes or on TuneIn, and you can see a, a complete interview or two within the last two weeks about learning to say no. Also, um, make a list of your goals, and when you accomplish a goal or even a part of a goal that you're trying to work on, check it off. That also creates a little endorphin, a little dopamine push for you as well. Um, another way to de-stress would be get lost in a great book. When was the last time you read a book, especially a great book? Um, possibly another opportunity for you is to talk to other people. And uh, they're calling them mastermind groups, but now more and more people have these groups where they can go share their ideas of what they're doing in their business. It's kind of people that are in similar fields as you. If you're a leader, they might be leaders. Um, If you're a manager, you might have management groups you can go talk to. But get out and talk to other people. I also suggest you leave the office. Get out of the office. Get out of your space. Try to get more sleep. Serve someone. All tools to help you uh, take your life back and hopefully de-stress. So what we're trying to do on the show, help you live longer and get through these tougher days where the news isn't so pretty. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Earlier we were talking about how simply the tone that of how your name um, is, is pronounced, like uh, the phonemes they were calling it, how it comes off the tongue may come off with a, a harshness of tone 
or maybe a softness of tone, which which then sends a signal to another person, the listener, that you've got a masculine name or maybe a more a softer name, like Ben. So, you know, it's it's just tone. And it's something we don't always pay attention to. But in my world of working with couples and communication and people, tone is telling, right? Tone matters. And so I wanted to spend a little time in the coach's corner talking about our tone. And um, it's, it really is, I think, a really powerful indicator of, of what somebody is actually feeling, of their emotion. Emotion is best managed and understood probably through somebody's uh, tone, more through their tone than their words. So pay attention to the tone, right? Tone, remember, is communication. When somebody says, and you can tell they're down, they're depressed, they're in the, sitting on the couch, their arms are folded, they look sad, and you say, are you okay? And they're like, fine. Do you hear the tone? That means they're okay, right? <laughs> yeah, Ben. They're fine. Yeah, because sometimes, like, yeah. Kaylee and I will talk like that and she'll say that. But she's really sad. That's but why she I, says she's okay, so I assume she's okay. Yeah, because she said, I'm okay, but her tone was like, yeah, I'm fine. Could you hear that? It's I subtle. hear, I'm fine. Okay, how about this? Yeah, I'm fine. Do you hear that? She's almost singing. Okay. Yeah, some people some people are tone deaf. Some people can't hear it. And I appreciate Ben being honest with us today. Because tone it's it's communication, right? Tone tells the deeper story. Tone is our friend, not our foe. When somebody oh, don't you give me that tone. Rapping yeah, Ben, just sit this one out because that – you might be missing the point. Uh, it's not – you know, tone. Some people just don't hear it. But tone does communicate, communicate uh, distress and levels of stress. So here are some keys. I'm going to give you five keys to recognizing and, and to either taming your tone when you need to tame it down or recognizing another person's tone. Okay? Five basic keys. Pay attention to them. Ben, take notes because you are going to need to take notes on this one. Okay. Okay. You, you, ben, don't take notes. Don't take notes. Yes, sir. Just listen with your mouth shut. Just listen. Number one, tone is um, tone is not personal. Okay? Tone is not – it's not – they're not trying to beat you up. It's not a personal thing. Tone is just a vibration that's coming from the emotion. It's the it's the real issue. So here are the tools. First, you got to read the signs of distress. Read the tones. If you hear volume getting louder, if you hear the pitch getting higher, or if you notice the pace of the conversation going faster – you got to see those signs. When you see those signs, it's telling you, pay attention to this one. 
This one's a little more erratic. If they're saying things, but they're not saying, but their emotion is showing energy, but they're not communicating using words that show they're mad. For example, just listen to how often we can change the same sentence. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Same sentence, four different meanings. I didn't say that. Okay, so it wasn't you. You did not say that. I didn't say that. You really didn't say what I'm accusing you of saying. I didn't say that. Okay, you didn't speak it. Oh, you wrote it? Okay, you wrote it down on the board. Is that what you did? You didn't say it. You wrote it. I didn't say that. Okay, so you did write it. You just didn't write what I'm saying you wrote. And the only way we can make sense of those same four words, I didn't say that, is by changing our tone and our inflection, right? So we're using this all of the time. But if you hear the volume getting louder, that should tell you something. If you notice the pitch is getting higher, that should tell you something. If you notice it's speeding up, pay attention to it. Then be careful and soften your heart. You cannot not communicate, right? So if I react to your negative tone and I get into my negative tone, then your tone is going to bounce off of me and I'm just going to attack you. Instead, I need to absorb what you're bringing on, your tone. And I don't need to absorb it so I'm destroyed and I can't feel anything. I absorb it so I can better understand you. I want you to share with me so I can better understand you. So I have to soften my heart and allow you to allow this information into me. And instead of just taking the negative interpretation and going with it, I need to I need to not just run with it. I need to get myself centered, focus on what I'm trying to do with you. I'm trying to be an influence. I'm trying to help you. And if you can, alter the mood or alter the mode with how I'm going to handle this and how I'm going to adjust the mood. So if I, if I can and they're mad at me and I can see I'm not mad, just tired. Okay, I'm sorry. And I might even at times give them some space. But if I come back in the room five minutes later and they seem happier, then I'm going to point out you seem happier. Sometimes it's better to just quit talking and maybe find a different mode of communicating, like a letter, a text. And then change what you can in the conversation and realize there's certain things you can't change. But I don't have to get louder because you are. I don't have to get, you know, higher screaming because you are. I don't have to run because you do. Just change the tone, the tempo, the timing. Basic stuff. But hard, isn't it? We'll take a break. Be back. More fun. Stick with us.